Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm your usual host, Kirk Puckett. But for this episode, I'm handing the microphone to J.W. Simmons for a discussion with Academy Director Trevor Allen and instructor developer Scott Grantham. The Interview Turn podcast is part of a regular series on WCLN Radio in Clinton called Things We Should Know. A video segment aired on Star Communications Cable Channel 16 and is currently available on YouTube. Today's podcast highlights a bit of the Academy's rich history, but focuses on the role and importance of school resource officers. I'm turning around. I'm driving down Quentin. I'm turning around. See if I can find him again. This is at Columbus. Subject 1074. Electronic ID NCJA 10-14. We're actually on site today, uh, getting out of the studio. We're in beautiful Salemburg, North Carolina, on site at the North Carolina Justice Academy. One of those locations in the county that we're very proud of. In fact, in the state, we're very proud of. We have two folks here to know quite a bit about that. And one of them is Trevor Allen, the director of North Carolina Justice Academy. Trevor, thank you for being with us today. JW, thanks for being here. Appreciate the opportunity. Good to see you again. Absolutely. And Scott Grantham uh, is with us also. And Scott is an instructor uh, developer here at the Justice Academy. And uh, Scott, thank you for taking time and all that you do here for the Academy and for law enforcement officers in the state. Glad to be here. want to kind of open this conversation up today to talk a bit about the academy itself. We're sitting on somewhat of hallowed ground in the sense of education. And uh, I'm, I'm sure, Trevor, you could touch on this a bit. But, you know, when I look at it and I, I ride through this facility or I'm over here for other reasons, I look around and, and I reflect on Southwood College. And then mm-hmm. I think about Pineland back right. during those days and then Edwards Military Academy. Right. Right. This has got a huge historical value, doesn't it? Rich educational history here, which we're very proud of. Going back to 1856, I believe the date was, and you mentioned some of those schools. And to be able to succeed that and do what we do from an educational standpoint, we're very proud to be able to do that. And it's really JW both campuses. So not just here in Salemburg, but even our other campus in Edneyville out in Henderson County. Uh, also was Henderson or Edneville High School prior to it being uh, um, taken over by us and, and used as our second campus. So rich history and education. We're very proud to keep that going. One of the things that strikes me is, is uh, when again, when I'm looking at the, this campus and I'm looking at what happened back in 1973 mm. with transforming <laughs> this and I look at that transition, it just seemed to be the how it came together was just a smart move on the state of North Carolina's part. And there was a lot of players in that. I won't get to call in the names between attorney generals and legislators and others. A lot of folks will probably check me on that. But the reality is there was a lot of players that made this happen. But it formed an interesting framework and fabric for training police officers and law enforcement officers in the state. I can get you to kind of touch on that a bit. Sure. So um, North Carolina has, and I, I say this for a matter of pride, not a show and all, well, maybe a little bit of show and all, yeah. but, uh, but we're very proud of the fact that in North Carolina, we lead the way in terms of training development and delivery across the country. There are states, JW, that use nothing but a set of PowerPoint slides to do critical training from, and there's no standardization across the state in the delivery of that training. Not a lot. I don't mean to paint a bad picture across the country, but there are some states that are at that level. North Carolina kind of led the way in creating, like you said, instead 
1973 with the Criminal Justice Council, it was called then. Now the Criminal Justice Education and Training Standards Commission. Mm-hmm. It's a mouthful. And then the sheriff's counterpart that too. It's another oddity across the country. We have two commissions here that we take our direction from in developing training for those commissions. But we're happy for that because that means we have a very high standard in what we develop and deliver in support of our officers. I think one of the things that interests me with that piece is, is that when I look at the commissions, they're made up with people that are of, of knowledge and expertise in the field of service to the public. And those commissions set the protocols or rules, Correct. if you will, of, of how folks, Scott, like you, that do the development and preparation of lesson plans. Do you see that as a huge advantage to have that in place? So you'll know what you're not only what you're expected to develop, but what kind of tunnel you're supposed to be drilling into, so to speak. It's unfortunate as one person, I can I can hear a lot of things from from the field. But when you have committees uh, and commission members who are from all walks of life in different parts of the state um, who can bring things to the table as to what an instructor needs to be providing because ultimately that's what what we're here for is to provide a service to the officers in North Carolina so that they can do their job better and and safer so yeah it's absolutely imperative to have that feedback and to have somebody to sort of steer us in the right direction Trevor uh, kind of a uh, question that I think a lot of folks is facing now is uh, you got a lot of talented folks here one of them sitting to your left there how do you sustain that? I mean, I'm having people tell me it's hard to get people, number one, to work. Number two, almost impossible to find the talent that, that you've got available here and that you've been able to put together and that was here when you came here. Yeah, it's, and I'm glad you mentioned it, JW. It's a huge challenge. Um, and really, when you look a level beyond that, you see that at all of our agencies across the state, and in fact, across the country, law enforcement and criminal justice agencies have a huge problem recruiting and retaining talent. Well, that's a trickle down to us here, you know, because we largely draw our training staff from those who have served as officers in the field, whether they could be detention, telecommunication, law enforcement, in any of those fields. A lot of them will have a, a choice. I want to change my career and I want to move on. Maybe I've been an instructor at a, a local level at their agency or at their community college, and they want to expand on that as a full time career. So they'll come to work for us and we and we leverage that experience that they've had as well as their talent as an instructor to create that that training for everyone else in the state. But when they those agencies have a problem recruiting and retaining talent that trickles down to us, it's also a big challenge for us because professional curriculum development is what we do. It's the cornerstone of what we do. And it's different than taking a lesson plan from somebody that they wrote and then just going and teaching that over and over and over. It's now I got to revise that every so often. I've got to research and development that. What's the best practices across the state that affect that training program? What are the cutting edge technology that's out there or you know a, a variety of issues that affect that? So it's it's different than just being a classroom instructor. It's about being a professional developer as well, which is why they have it in their title. Segway to you, Scott. I mean, uh, that was a perfect way to open the door to touch yeah. on this. And I think that I want to kind of get into this up front. The first segment of the show, I want to talk a bit about the kinds of things that you do here, particularly as it relates to some of the most critical areas that we as a society has identified, and, and that is our children, our folks that go to school each and every day. And, and we look now in an era in which we have seen for the past 20 plus years, some horrific sights of things that's happened within school buildings. And and you represent that particular piece of research development in something we refer to as school resource officers. 
I don't want to say they are not normal people, but they are beyond uh, the average expectation. How did that strike you when you got kind of tasked with that chore, should I say? Maybe it's not a chore, that opportunity. Maybe I'll change that as an opportunity. That opportunity to help develop the framework of what only is expected of those folks, but how they should perform, what their background is, what their skill set is. Just talk to us about those issues. So fortunately, I was able to serve as an SRO or school resource officer uh, prior to coming to the academy. Uh, so I served as an SRO for about three years. I was in a high school, a middle school, and elementary. So I was able to see pretty much all grade levels. Had a pretty good understanding of what is required of an officer who is assigned as a school resource officer. So, you know, the fact that there 20 years ago, there were very few SROs in the state. Mm-hmm. And now there are probably a couple of thousand. It's a pretty big task. And having that background and knowing what is needed, I think, sort of pushes me to make sure that I'm putting out the right training that they need. Fortunately, I'm able to sit on some uh, various boards by the North Carolina Association of School Resource Officers with SROs from across the state, taking what they perceive as issues that need to be pushed out. That's always helpful in that development. Uh, And then, you know, always learning yourself. So I'm I'm always constantly learning, whether it be teaching a class or helping run a class or sitting in someone else's class. I'm taking all that, putting it together and uh, putting it out there, you know, in either revising training that we already have or creating new training that there's a need for. This uh, strikes me, um, guys, it's kind of a, a demanding situation to be in. It's, it's, I can just, I mean, I can sit here and, and just listen and I can feel the pressure on that because the guys that's in those schools, they're not, quote, just the average law enforcement officer or police officer. You know, I'm hearing psychologists, I'm hearing relationship building, I'm hearing bonding. How do you train that? How, how do you get the right person for that? How do you vet someone for that? Fortunately, I don't have to do that. You know, that's for the police chiefs and sheriffs, but it's probably one of the most critical things that can be done is to choose the right person to be put in the school. Like you said, you're a law enforcement officer first and foremost when you're put in the school, but you have some additional tasks and you have to have a, a totally different mindset than, say, someone running traffic versus being in the school because you're you're dealing with a, a precious commodity, if you will, mm-hmm. in people's kids. So the selection is extremely important. Putting the wrong person in the school could be detrimental to what the SRO program stands for. You know, that that's that's the big thing. You do have to have a good selection process. Now we do help sometimes with those selection process and providing good questions for review boards. You know, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of agencies would sort of stick someone in a position as an SRO because that was the position there. Now, what I'm finding and what I'm hearing are it's considered more of a almost like a promotion um, where there's a review board where there's several people putting in for this one position and they're going to review and see who meets the qualifications and then pick from those who are the best. I want to I want to continue the, to explore that subject when we come back from break. And Trevor, I'd like to get your observations on where we're going with with training in that area, what the future looks like for that. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. We're talking with Trevor Allen, director of the North Carolina Justice Academy, and Scott Grantham. He's a instructor developer here. We're talking about SRO training, school resource officer. We'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned. This is NCJA 1014 host Kirk Puckett. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month in the United States. 
Human trafficking has deep roots throughout our country, with many of those right here in North Carolina. On an upcoming episode of NCJA 1014, I'll be talking with a group in Cumberland County that's part of a collaborative effort to not just prosecute offenders, but assist human trafficking survivors. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us today. We appreciate you being here. The name of the show is We Should Know. My name is J.W. Simmons, and you probably are hearing us on WCLN Radio or Star Communications TV. We're talking with folks at the North Carolina Justice Academy, two people that really know what's going on over here, the director of North Carolina Justice Academy, Trevor Allen. Trevor, thank you for being with us. Scott Grantham. Scott, uh, as we went to break, we were talking about one of those areas that you focus on and you've been involved in it with school resource officers and you were elaborating a bit on what that is and what that means. I want to kind of open this um, uh, segment, I guess, with helping us understand the dynamics of a school resource officer. Given the research you've done, the classes you've developed that are used statewide, tell us what some of those dynamics are and what folks should know about that person that is a school resource officer. So I think I alluded to earlier, you know, first and foremost, an SRO that's put into a school is a law enforcement officer. But we talk about a, a triad concept of roles for that resource officer. Again, first being law enforcement. Then there's also an educator role and a mentor role. And by everybody pretty much knows what law enforcement does. Investigate crimes, those type of things. But then we get into the educator role for the school resource officer, you know, depending on which level of school they're in, elementary, middle or high. You know, they can actually go into a classroom and teach on some topic. It could be law enforcement related or not law enforcement mm-hmm. related. And then the mentor is just that providing a, a outlet for a student to talk to. You know, there are numerous people in a school, you know, from guidance counselors, librarians, various, various folks. But sometimes those people may not appeal to a certain student and having that law enforcement there to be a mentor is is important. Thinking back to my times as an SRO, a lot of times my mentoring was not law enforcement related. It was things that I experienced as a, as a child or as a young adult that I could bring to a student uh, to try to help them in whatever situation they're going through. So, you know, it's not it's not just wearing a badge as an SRO. It's about also just being a, a person and showing that side to your students and staff. Trevor, when you, when you look at that and you look at the, that particular area of training that, that happens through your oversight, is that something that we put enough time into? Is there something that we need to understand as a larger society of the excellence that you're expecting, of the outcomes you're expecting? And are we measuring that? Is, is there a way to measure if we're getting to that point? Yeah. So, JW, really, we're talking about this level three, what we call in the professional development Mm -hmm. phase of level three. So not just, you know, a level one and two, meaning did someone like the training? You know, did it get good reviews? Is there a transfer of that training to the real world? Right. Did what I just teach them affect them positively in in their daily roles? Right. So that's and that's an ongoing thing. Many different ways to try and measure that. And it's not an exact science, but we certainly try to do that. But with your first part of your question with SRO is why we have an SRO certificate program here. You know, taking Scott's basic classes, step one, mm-hmm. you know, he's got a list of classes within a certificate program mm-hmm. that if you, if an officer completes those classes, lends them, you know, not only gives them a certificate, but lends them, you know, that credibility as being a subject matter expert in this world. And so we try to go beyond just that minimum and really affect that training in multiple layers. 
And this is a question for both of you together, and both of you comment on this. There seems to be a movement today that, that we have a stronger tie to social justice rather than criminal justice. And that affects the way people look at what enforcement is and their expectation of enforcement. Now, if you think about what I'm saying here, just look at what I guess revealed itself in Uvalde, Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at look at what's happening uh, as we look at various major shooting situations, not only in schools but throughout the country. And and social justice comes up in literally minutes and says, "We want justice now." But if we look at justice in the traditional term, that's not the way justice happens. Help us understand, particularly with school resource officers, how, how do you engage a person, explain to them this is part of what you're going to be facing? Because the reality is they will face that. Well, you know. That's pretty deep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't know exactly how we, we explain that, but, you know, from a law enforcement standpoint, all law enforcement experience this, we, you know, basically we want what we want now. Right. Um, and. You know, I don't really know how to how you teach someone to deal with that other than using various different tactics and research that we we pick up on from de-escalation, which is, is talked about a lot. You know, we've been you've been in law enforcement, mm-hmm. you know, a long time ago, mm-hmm. we'll just say mm-hmm. <laughs> you were doing de-escalation techniques. Yeah. It just wasn't necessarily called de-escalation. We got crime prevention back. Right. Then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, from from our standpoint, we're trying to, you know, not necessarily hang a title on it, but but create an avenue on how to do this properly mm-hmm. if time and circumstances allow. You know, so I, I guess just putting as much to these officers as we can. In the SRO training, we try to do some role play, mm-hmm. and some of those role play exercises will involve, you know, a student. They'll involve a teacher who's mad mm-hmm. because you didn't do what they felt like you should do to a mm-hmm. student as far as like charging and have them work through how they're going to respond and why they responded that way. And then as a class, we'll critique that and sort of talk about the do's and don'ts and why would you want to do this or why would you not want to do that? So that's really the only way I can think to sort of prepare Mm -hmm. as much as you can for what they may encounter, especially as an SRO. Trevor, one of the things I I know that you are kind of use as as a guide, should I say, and and I'll call them core drivers, and and it's called relevance, innovation, timely, and engaging, the right method of doing things. And this is, I don't know whether you coined this or not, but it's it's ladled out on you. So Uh tell us how that fits with what Scott has just described. Well, I think so. I did coin it. And I think and I have to leave the room. He can tell you what the real response is to that (laughs) is our mantra daily. But um, it really is born from my hatred of hearing this is the way we've always done it. Right. That phrase. Well, this has worked for 30 years. Why are we changing it now? Maybe because you've been doing it for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Might might take a lot of look at it. But really, if if anything, we are doing in terms of developing curriculum or providing an audiovisual project for a stakeholder. But if it doesn't meet those four things of being relevant, innovative, timely or engaging, just not interested in doing it because that's what our field demands. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, they they want the highest professional level of, Mm -hmm. of training and service they can get. So that's just kind of our mantra to make sure that we do that. And. You know, as it as it relates, though, to get back to the school resource arena is that's why Scott developed an advanced course to go beyond the basics, right, where they put through these more scenarios and how to apply a tourniquet and that kind of thing in the field that, you know, if you haven't done that or learned anything about that since 15, 20 years ago, you were in basic law enforcement training. Mm -hmm. You need to be reminded of that because that's the real world. 
but it's also uh, why the professional part of the curriculum development for us is, is the research component. There's a lot of news. You mentioned Uvalde, and there's a lot of news, a lot of opinions out there about what police or law enforcement did right or wrong. Most of it, people are saying, was done wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? It takes time to figure that out. I can't just, you know, without all the facts and time to digest all the actions and, and read an after-action report to know, really critique right or wrong what was done. And then we take those types of things and go, okay, what are the lessons learned that we can now incorporate moving forward? I can't just take a news media story from Uvalde and put that in his program tomorrow. We need to really digest all this to figure it out. So there's a time element of it, too. Everybody wants things now. We would rather get it right. And I do spell it wrong. R-I-T-E, right? R-I-T. Uh, we want to get it right rather than fast. And I think the, the relevance of that is something that caught my eye, uh, Scott, is that you were recognized uh, for doing course development and building it around that one of, one of those words in that right model, which was relevance. And one of the, the statements in there struck me as a question. It was not a question, but it was a question. In recognizing you, the statement was preparing officers to meet current demands of their jobs keeps us relevant. My question is... How do we understand and know what their current demands are? Because they're changing so rapidly. And that question is going to be probably one we might need to transcend over. But we'll start with about a minute, minute and a half on that before we have to go to break. So you mean like? Yeah. How how does that job, how does that relevant piece where we're preparing somebody for training and then all of a sudden we have, as as, uh, Trevor just alluded to, the shooting in Uvalde, for example. Something happens like that and all of a sudden you have to, I guess I'm not, this is a statement, but it just seems that I would be looking at my lesson plans going, did I miss something somewhere? Mm -hmm. Because that's one of the things that came out of that so far is that somebody didn't do something. But we know that something was in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, even using Uvalde, I already use that in further research and in the classes I've taught last week, teaching active shooter Mm -hmm. uh, refresher class. Mm -hmm. We're using things regardless of whether or not we know this is what accurately happened? Do we know that there was a door unlocked or or not? We haven't seen that official after action right. report. But if there was, we want to go ahead and start addressing mm-hmm. that possibility. So using lessons learned, you know, even though it sucks that a tragedy mm-hmm. happened, learning from it to try to avoid that happening again is ultimately our, our goal. So taking those things, just like in Sandy Hook, uh, down in Parkland, mm-hmm. using all those different lessons learned. That's a, a big part of development and the actual uh, implementation of the training. I want to I follow up when we come back on sure. that, Trevor, and kind of get your thoughts on yeah, that. Because I, I, I think we're just, I think we're just opening a door on this, and this could be a whole other show. But we're, I want to go there anyway. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. We're talking about very timely subjects that's happening today that you need to know about and understand. We'll be back in a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Again, thank you for being with us. We're talking about things related to criminal justice. We're talking about people that train and develop the lesson plans that law enforcement officers use all over the state. We're talking with Trevor Allen, the North Carolina Justice Academy. Trevor, director, thank you for being here. And instructor developer, uh, Scott Grantham. We've gotten into uh, so many threads here, uh, Trevor, uh, about specific areas of training uh, until I want to try to touch on as many as we can in such a short period of time that we have. 
But one of the things when we were going to break, we were talking a bit about this whole area that is a serious specialty for SROs, school resource officers. That specialty area, as Scott has pointed out, covers a broad range of expectations. Training is one of those in which you've offered training. One of the things we were touching on was, and you mentioned the Uvalde, Texas situation, is these particular officers, highly trained as they are, could be expected to to face the wrong end of deadly force. And we've seen that. Let's talk about how do we how do we do that and have some assurance And again, to Scott's point, we're not doing the hiring, we're doing the training. But how do we get some assurance, at least in our mind, Mm -hmm. that they're going to do the right thing at the time they need to do the right thing for the right person uh, or persons, i.e. those children? Yeah, I think on a few levels, J.W., and I'd like Scott probably in a minute to probably follow up, follow me up with talking specifics Mm -hmm. within the SRO training, because that's his world. He's the expert in that. But. On a larger sense, it's about creating the most professional, cutting-edge training we can create mm-hmm. that's legally defensible and that's current and relevant to today's needs. I think that's first. The commissions, and I say commissions both because, again, in North Carolina, we have two. We have the Criminal Justice and the Sheriff's Commission. Both require now to serve as a school resource officer. You must have completed the basic school resource officer mm-hmm. course that, that Scott writes and delivers. Now, we've created a train the trainer option to get that across the state quickly because that's a big demand. I think Scott mm-hmm. noted there's at least 2000 SROs in the state. So that's one level. Second is the commissions jointly decide what officers have to take as a mandated in-service training topic of those 24 hours that are required for all law enforcement officers. Last year, there was a topic, and Scott wrote this, right, on responding to school incidents. Mm -hmm. So it's not just basic what you'd get in basic law enforcement. If you want to be an SRO, you have to take this. And now you get another refresher at another level. So I think consistently driving it home. And what research has shown is that that's really how things get retained is what you do every day. That's Mm -hmm. who you are. Aristotle, I think, even said that many years ago, Mm -hmm. we do every day. So if you're not practicing the skill sets routinely, it's not going to be retained. So we're learning that from everything from use of force to you know school resource or school incidents, that type of thing across a, a wide spectrum of uh, pieces of training that you have to do it frequently or it's not going to be retained. But I think Scott could probably touch more on in individual things within the program that are uh, driven home as part of that training. It, it, Scott, if you would uh, address that also in the sense of helping us understand school resource officers. And then you've got this other area that we refer to as active shooter mm-hmm. uh, training, which has been engaged now for over 20 years. And there's an expectation that officers now, upon arrival at an active shooting situation, they don't stand around and wait for the guy in charge or the one with the utmost bars or the who's the incident commander. They're tasked with going in immediately and addressing and contacting and putting down, I will say, that active shooter. Where does that get gray for you as a trainer? So I, well, I did I was that was pretty deep. I'm going to give well, you some no, time to answer that. So I think going back to what Trey was talking about with the training, yeah, you know, and being cutting edge is it's one thing to sit someone down in a classroom and tell them something, mm-hmm. but actually getting them involved. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of law enforcement, well, people in general, I would imagine, but I know from surveys within the law enforcement community, we're kinesthetic learners. Mm-hmm. We learn best by hands on. Mm-hmm. So putting them out there in scenarios with various different options we have, whether it be a, a use of force simulator, actually using simunition rounds, so paint marking rounds. Mm-hmm is about as close to the real thing as we can get. Mm-hmm. There's really no gray area when it comes to someone actively committing homicide and you being on scene. 
there's no, like you said, there's no, let's wait and hear what somebody has to say. What does policy say? I, I like to tell people when I raise my hand and put my hand on the Bible, I took the oath to go in and stop the killing. You know, now I don't want to be a, an idiot and not be tactful. So we want to teach and train the best we can how best to do that and stay alive. Right. But ultimately, we've got to get in there and do our job. As far as the training goes, just taking it to the absolute closest to real life you can do. We were in a meeting a couple of weeks ago and uh, another instructor um, out at the West Campus was talking about training he's developing and implementing where when these things happen and, uh, you know, an officer fails to do something or maybe doesn't do something exactly right. You know, why did that happen? Mm-hmm. So looking at sort of the psychology behind it and preparing an officer for this may happen when you're faced with an adversary. Mm-hmm. You may lose feeling in your legs. You may start shaking with this adrenaline mm-hmm. dump. So sort of preparing them so that it's not a complete and total shock whenever something does happen. You know, it's not necessarily what if, but when, right? But do you you also do training in the area of active shooter. I mean, you, you, you've actually gone out and trained officers. When you're doing that training, do you have or have you had occasions that you would look and think, I'm not sure this person is really getting it, or uh, do, do you see observations in times that you feel like you need to pull somebody off to the side and say, now, you do understand in, in the real world, this is what you're going to be, because this is huge. I think this is one piece of it that a lot of folks hadn't talked about that much, but you're asking a person not much different than going into a combat situation under gunfire to continue to press forward. Right. And it's almost like an unconscious request. You know, your conscious may be telling you, you don't need to do that. But inside of you, as you just pointed out, something's got to be there to trigger you to do it. You know, I find lots of teaching moments with students or officers who come to training, uh, whether that be, you know, a new officer that's an SRO or an officer that's just in an active shooter training, like a refresher. There's the standard, but what I'm finding more, and uh, like last week, like I said, we did a lot of active shooter refresher with a, with a big agency. There's a lot more hesitation in the decision to use force versus the decision to get to that point. And I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. as far as getting to the sound of gunfire, right. there's no hesitation. I've not found any officers who's not moving and getting there as quickly as possible. They can get to that hallway outside the door. Right. But when they get there and they're encountering, instead of having perfectly good legal backing Mm -hmm. to use whatever force, let's just say deadly force, Mm -hmm. they're hesitating and they're asking a lot of questions or they're, they're giving a lot of commands. And I think it goes back to officers in general sometimes are being picked apart based on a, a decision they had to make in a matter of seconds. I see that now transposing into our training as to when officers are are really questioning themselves. And then immediately, whenever you go to talk to them and say, hey, why did you hesitate Mm -hmm. to basically mitigate this threat? Why did you talk and keep asking these questions when you knew you were good? I don't really know. I just I felt like I needed to continue to challenge them versus go ahead and and do what legally needed to be done. It's frustrating Mm -hmm. because you're teaching de-escalation. But the escalation sometimes can come back and bite you whenever you're dealing with something as severe as a, an active shooter who's standing in a hallway in a school with a gun after shots have been fired. Not a lot of time there to spend de-escalating. 
we need to mitigate that threat. So, um, so Trevor, what I'm what I'm hearing Scott saying, it comes down to an individual's decision, not a chain of command decision, and that individual has to feel empowered enough to do that. Correct. And when it comes to schools, there's I'm here because we I talk to stakeholders a lot, mm-hmm. right? Chiefs and sheriffs, and and a lot of the conversation lately has been. You know, that first, that command presence on the scene, you know, setting a command post and who's in charge of mm-hmm. it really should be the SRO in a school, right? Mm-hmm. If that's the person on site, mm-hmm. right, who knows the layout of the school and knows who's supposed to be there and not, really that person should be the one in charge, at least initially. Mm-hmm. We do find some things in training. I guess I'm listening to Scott talk about specifically SRO things and active shooter. I've thought about a number of topics, even when I was teaching many moons ago. But you do have students that will show you they either have it or they don't. And really, that's an opportunity. It's like, a, you know, the Tour de France is on right now, right? You can't win the tour in the first week, but you can lose it, right? So in training, you can show those behaviors that maybe this isn't for you. We owe it to that student to pull them aside, like he said, and talk to them about this and present every scenario possible as close as you can to the real thing to see how that person will perform. This, to me, is such an important topic because we've talked about Uvalde, but if you look back at Parkland, I think we had the same situation in Parkland in which we had a school resource officer that either hesitated or didn't aggressively pursue the the person that was um, uh, committing the carnage. So, you know, I want to make sure that we spend enough time on this before we go to the the next kind of commentary I want to talk about. Uh, We're coming up on a break here and uh, we're going to come back and and then I'm try to do a, a bigger wrap. But I think one of the things we're going to discover in our conversation today is is that some of these subjects need to have more time and we need to spend more time with the public in developing understanding students yes first and foremost but the public needs to understand ladies and gentlemen we'll be back in a moment uh, we're talking about a very timely subject uh, that affects all of our lives uh, we look forward to seeing you for the last segment in one moment North Carolina Justice Academy today, Trevor Allen, and also the person that is in charge of training for school resource officers, instructor, developer, Scott Grantham. Scott, a lot of folks know your name in this area. I've spent about 14 plus years with the Sheriff's Department, and you ended up in, in this job, which puts you in a position as Trevor, you alluded to a while ago, training school resource officers 2,000 plus in the state on particular side. Got a lot of stuff I want to cover. One of the, one of the things I want to kind of segue into is is clearing the air a bit on this um, active shooter thing. Trevor, does it trouble you that I guess the question would be maybe not trouble you, but the resource allocation that you get? I mean, let's face it, all state departments uh, have budgets, and you, you're the person that has to live with that budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a resource allocation adequate to ensure that we're getting the talent like Scott and others to sustain and maintain these kinds of training? Sure. It's, I mean, it's a, a perpetual question, right? Is mm-hmm. and It affects not just us, but every industry, every state department is going after a finite amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. We were lucky in this last legislative budget. I asked for two, two additional instructor positions and got both of them. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not to say that no one's listening to us. But, you know, we we address things ebb and flow as things arise. You know, right now it's this. Would I love to be able to duplicate Scott about four times? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where the attention is right now. And in six months, it may be on something else. So a lot of times it's sure, I'll take every position I can get. Mm-hmm. But it's also about, um, you know, being able to allocate those resources I do have right now. So, and we continually do that on a regular basis. 
One of the things we talked about, um, Scott, a while ago was the attention that you pay to active shooter, to resource officers throughout the state, uh, to the certification programs, not just in basic courses for resource officers. Do you see uh, a need for more, how should I put this, marketing, advertising, putting out expectations, trying to get people to understand the training component? Because this goes way beyond the basic law enforcement training program that the academy also develops for basic training. It goes way beyond that, and it drills into a specific area that right now is part of a major radar for the state, I mean, for the country. Heck, I'll put it out there for the world. I mean, we just seen some active shooter situations way beyond the classroom. What spins in your head about what do I need to do? Do I need to go back to to the right approach? Is that relevancy? Do I need to go back and adjust something to ensure the relevancy of what I'm saying? And how do I connect that with the legal part? Well, you know, constantly we're in a a state of revision. Like I said, with Uvalde, even though we don't have that after action report, we still know some things that potentially occurred. Mm -hmm. So already implementing that, I think, is important. A class that I teach maybe next week. Anything I learned this week is going to go in that class, Mm -hmm. whether or not it gets put in the lesson plan, you know, actually typed in uh, is one thing, but I can still talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, The relevant part obviously goes back to making sure we're meeting the need of our officers that are on the street so that they can do their job, you know, efficiently. And like I said, learning from positive things as well as some that are negative, you know, of utmost importance in providing that that update. Well, one of the things that strikes me is, uh, guys, that we're talking about this is uh, just recently, when I say recently, in the past few weeks, school boards in the state have been looking at whether we should continue with school resource officers. And I was a, a little bit of hmm. watching a, a program the other day, and it's a, a board member uh, from another county, not in the eastern part of the state, but from another county, made a statement that she couldn't understand. It was Maybe it was somebody speaking to the school board, but they made a statement that they couldn't understand why school resource officers should be armed. They shouldn't have guns anyway. It sent a bad message to the students. How do you respond to that kind of observation? But I mean, that's a real world observation. Either one, you both of them. He could respond probably more detail than I could, but I think if you look at Uvalde itself, you look at Parkland itself, I mean, to say that the officers there shouldn't be armed, I think the evidence is clear. And I also think it's a lot of people that make judgments and have never walked in the shoes of that. It's, it's also a big issue. You know, the finger often gets pointed at law enforcement or even training as an mm-hmm. extension. But how much of the attention is going to the way schools are secured? You know, what's the infrastructure of the school like? I've been to my school. I won't name it here, but I've been to my kid's school and was able to walk right in, say I need to get my kid for an appointment. Never had an ID check. Those things also have to be looked at. I'm not saying that's the way it is across the board, but that that's a personal experience mm-hmm. that scared me. Mm-hmm. That also says this is an issue that transcends anything dealing with police. I didn't mean to step on Scott. And that's, something yeah. that. but, but Scott, you mentioned it a while ago. Housed in those facilities is the most precious things that we hold dear as a society, and that's our children. Right. You know, I, I like anybody else, would love to think that we don't need law enforcement in a school. Schools are just, you know, inherently safe, but that's not the case. And you can look around and, and see that. You know, there was a lot of movement to take not only SROs out, but to, I guess there was the term defund police. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of research that's going to show that when that occurred, crime rose. And now you're trying to backfill those positions that were, you know, basically done away with. 
there was a study that I bring up in class on school resource officers that were taken out of the school Mm -hmm. and almost immediately a huge increase in crime occurred. You know, there's the thought behind the SRO is one thing is deterring, just simply deterring. You know, for me, law enforcement, even though I am a law enforcement officer, there's a pretty big deterrence. I don't get out and run the roads at, Mm -hmm. you know, 15, 20 miles an hour speed limit Mm -hmm. simply because I'm in fear of what I might come in contact with an officer. So there's that deterrent aspect of an SRO. Just being there, you know, can be beneficial. A lot of shootings didn't have an SRO. Sandy Hook was one of those that there was no SRO there. And it makes you wonder, was that specific site chosen because of that? So, you know, I don't quite understand the whole, let's take SROs out of the school or unarm them just because the the way society is now. I mean, we're seeing things happen uh, on a rather regular basis, whether it be an active shooter or just simply something like someone coming in and taking a child that they didn't have the proper paperwork to do. You know, it's, it's little things that mm-hmm. SROs deal with every day where the general public probably doesn't know. One of the things, that, uh, Trevor, that, that strikes me, and, and I'm going to you with this because you, you're probably the second senior person in the room, but I find my... <laughs> I'll be old. I mean, I'm, just, I'm just putting it out there. So, so sometimes I have to check myself. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking in the mirror and I, I'm thinking, uh, you know, and I have to, again, have to lean on somebody that's a little stronger and a lot younger. But I look at it and I go, it seems the world's coming apart. And it's, it's things that is just historically, you mentioned a while ago, it's, it's, it was so obvious. But now we've accepted so much. I mean, it's really strange things. And, and part of it is we're expecting law enforcement officers to not only be psychologists, but when we use the word de-escalate, we're not talking about people that have a degree in psychiatric care nor do they have a clinical psychology degree, nor are they paid the highest salaries that you can imagine. We're talking people to train to do specific things, and one of those is enforce the law. Help kind of open that door for us. And we might have to we might have to break here in a minute and do part of this in overtime, but I, I want to get that piece in. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a JW a great observation. I think back when I went to basic law enforcement training and got into this business back in 1992. Think of just the changes that have happened society-wise in those last 30 years. Cell phones, was that even a a thing, a big thing, really? No, not really. I mean, using a typewriter when I first got into this. Mm -hmm. So other major changes, though, I mean, when you look at the response of police, it was really expected to do that, to respond. Mm -hmm. Now it's, yes, respond to it and handle it, whether it's an arrest or, you know, taking a report, investigating a crime. But it's also partnering with stakeholders, partnering with community interest groups and community leaders to find the root causes of problems, not just crime, but quality of life. And what's the root of that? Is it economic? Is it education? Is it what role can police play in that bridge, you know, to help solve these problems? So the role has expanded almost exponentially. And, and that becomes critical, Scott, I think, when we think about your development piece and how you develop a course to be able to say to the folks, this is what we want you to do. However, these other factors that are circling around out there, if they land on your shoulder at that time, may be a critical component and could destroy the whole concept of what you're trying to teach. You've been listening to a special segment of NCJA 1014 with guest host J.W. Simmons of WCLN Radio in Clinton. Today's guest were Trevor Allen, director of the North Carolina Justice Academy, and Scott Grantham instructor, course developer on our East Campus in Salemburg. Keep watching our website for updated podcasts of NCJA 1014.
NCJA 1014. This is NCJA 1014 host Kirk Puckett. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month in the United States. Human trafficking has deep roots throughout our country, with many of those right here in North Carolina. On an upcoming episode of NCJA 1014, I'll be talking with a group in Cumberland County that's part of a collaborative effort to not just prosecute offenders, but assist human trafficking survivors.